After showing kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, David extends his condolences to Hanan, the son of Nahash, king of Ammon, with unfortunate results. This is the 19th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from Second Samuel and chapter 10. Second Samuel and chapter 10, the entire chapter, 19 verses, 19 verses, Second Samuel and chapter 10, 1 through, 1 through 19. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And it came to pass after this, that the king of the children of Ammon died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his stead. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. And David sent to comfort him by the hand of his servants for his father. And David's servants came into the land of the children of Ammon. And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanun, their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father? that he had sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Wherefore, Hanun took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. And they told it unto David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beers be grown, and then return. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, the children of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 footmen, and of the king Mekah, a thousand men, and of Ishtab, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Job and all the host of the mighty men. And the children of Ammon came out and put the battle in array at the entering of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and Ishtab and Mekah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the front of the battle was against him before and behind, he chose all of the choice men of Israel and put them in array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he delivered into the hand of Abishai, his brother, that he might put them in array against the children of Ammon. And he said, If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will come and help thee. Be of good cheer, and let us play the men for our people and for the cities of our God, and the Lord do that which seemeth him good. And Joab drew nigh and the people that were with him unto the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the children of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fled, they fled, they also before Abishai, and entered into the city. So Joab returned from the children of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. And when the Syrians saw that they were smitten before Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadarezer sent and brought out the Syrians that were beyond the river. And they came to Helam, and Shobach, the captain of the host of Hadarezer, went before them. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and passed over Jordan and came to Elam. And the Syrians set themselves in array against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David slew the men of 700 chariots of the Syrians and 40,000 horsemen and smote Shobach, the captain of their host, who died there. 
And when all the kings that were servants to Hadariza saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians and chapter 12, beginning in verse 12 through verse 20. By the same spirit that records the historical account of this great slaughter of Israel against the wicked, the Apostle Paul writes, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now God hath set in the members, every one of them, in the body as it had pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now after fulfilling his oath to his beloved brother Jonathan by taking Mephibosheth as his own son, Perhaps David did this as a comfort over David's loss of Ammon and, and now the situation with uh, Absalom. Perhaps it, it fueled David's compassion to, to take Mephibosheth as his own son. So now after fulfilling that oath, news comes to David that the king of the Ammonites has died and his son Hanun has taken the throne. Now of course David had a an enlarged heart of kindness, but always the military strategist. David sees this situation not only to return kindness to to the king, but to forge a political alliance, a military alliance with the Ammonites, which would increase David's dominion influence within the pagan nations of that region. Even though the Ammonites are distinct relatives of David, Saul, if you remember, Saul had made war against them in the past, making them bitter rivals. So if you remember, in an effort to manipulate Saul's army to fight in his behalf, even though the people didn't want to fight, the tyrant king Saul threatened his own warriors by cutting up a yoke of oxen into 12 pieces for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was a veiled threat, an intimidation tactic with the goal of manipulating his own citizens, his own army, that if they refused to fight for Saul, he would then wage war against his own people. He would cut them up as he cut up the oxen. And that's what tyrants do. They, they threaten, they intimidate their own people. They manipulate either through political deception or through overt threats. And so if the people who they regard as subjects and not citizens refuse to toe the line and do whatever they tell them to do, they are labeled enemies of the state and threatened with violence. And in order to do this in modern times... Tyrannical governments, unlike cutting up a yoke of oxen 
Tyrannical governments weaponize various institutions and target individuals or groups of individuals that voice their disagreement or dissent. And we see that today. Sadly, unfortunately, horribly, we see that today. We see this unfolding in our own United States with the weaponization of the FBI, the IRS, the CDC, the NEA, the Justice Department, social media, television, talking heads, and even through direct statements by POTUS. When a sitting president can threaten his own citizens with the retaliation by an F-16 fighter jet, we have moved into a situation, a scenario reminiscent of Rome, Russia under Stalin, China under Mao, Germany under Hitler, Cambodia under Pol Pot, and Uganda under Idi Amin. That's where the church is today, especially the church. The slaughter of the oxen symbolized what Saul intended to do to any that would rebel against his regal authority, right or wrong. Consider this situation once again leading up to the assault against the Ammonites. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 7, we read this. And he, Saul, took a yoke of oxen and knew them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul... And after Samuel, shall it be done unto his oxen? And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it unto the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, and slew the Ammonites. See, he's targeting the Ammonites. He slew the Ammonites unto the heat of the day, and it came to pass that they which remained were scattered, so that two of them were not left together. Now that problem, that situation, that warfare, placed Israel in bitter opposition against the Ammonites during the days of Saul, which probably led to the Ammonites originally siding with David while he was in exile. But now under the Davidic unification of the 12 tribes, things could be different. David believed that things could now be different. There may be the possibility of an alliance, even even a renewed friendship. So he's about to show kindness to the king's son. And so in a cunning political move to galvanize another military force under his kingdom's influence, even making them friends once again, uniting the relatives again, David sends messengers to Hanun, the son of the king, as a token of consolation. Now while this, I believe, was a sincere act of kindness, it was also an act of cunning. Solomon might have remembered this strategy when he when he wrote in Proverbs 21.14 and, and Ecclesiastics 10.4, a gift in secret pacifieth anger and a reward in the bosom strong wrath. And if the spirit of the ruler rises up against thee, leave not thy place for yielding pacifieth great offenses. So here Solomon was remembering what David was trying to do perhaps. David's plan, at least in theory, it was brilliant. Let's offer an olive branch. Let's offer some peace. Let's console the son of the king. David was going to show kindness to the king's son in return 
for the kindness that the king had shown David in the past while David was in exile, hoping to join forces in a confederacy. Notice verse 2 of 2 Samuel 10. Then said David, I will show kindness unto Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness unto me. Now the Bible doesn't record exactly what the details of the Ammonite kindness was explicitly, but it seems as if when David was fleeing from Saul, he was protected, as we've read before in 1 Samuel, he's protected by the Moabites who are actually kin to the Ammonites, and the king of the Ammonites might have been party to that protection. So he wants now to show kindness in light of that protection. David seeks to return the favor and take the high road of kindness toward the king's son. And this this again shows something about David's character, not only a military strategist, but, but, but a man who is a man of faith, a man of kindness, a man not only of cunning, but a man of great character. He remembers the kindness of, of the king. He remembers kindness of, of the nation. Well, he was in the most vulnerable, almost in the same way as he remembered his oath to Jonathan. Very vulnerable position, and yet someone showed him kindness when he was at his lowest. And he remembered that. And he's certainly now at this point, think about it, he is the king of Israel. He is the, the sovereign of, of, of nations. And now he's going to bow and show kindness. And he didn't have to do that. He did not have to do that. As king of one of the most powerful nations of the known world, he could have just said, you know what? Forget about the condolences. Forget about kindness. Let's just go and take the whole kingdom from the Ammonites. We could just simply wage war and defeat them and make them my subjects. Instead, he wanted to confederate with them, become friends with them, and forge an alliance. So David would not simply flex his muscles. He wanted to show kindness. He remembered those who assisted him when he was most in need. He remembered where he came from and who assisted him in helping him achieve his present position. And that's a lesson for us today. I know sometimes, you know, we get so full of of ourselves. We have such a big head of steam because we know a little Bible. We know a little this. We can can do this. We can philosophize that. We can give the apologetic thing here. We forget where we came from. We have to remember where we came from because that's what humbles us. That's what makes us men. Not the knowledge, but the humility. And David remembered when he was most in need. And yet, while the plan was most likely fueled by David's kindness, it still was a brilliant political and military move. Politically motivated. To some extent. Sadly, however, while it was offered as an act of sincere kindness, it was also an act which was grossly miscalculated by the king of Israel, David. David had seriously miscalculated the disposition, not so much of the king's son, but the princes who were counselors of the king's son, and he failed to recognize the continuing animosity that the princes of Ammon still held against David and against Israel. Consider some of the lessons here. Number one, it's always the best policy to begin by showing kindness in return for a kindness. Now, until that kindness is rejected, kindness must be our default position, even to an enemy. 
We show kindness. We show humility. However, and this is very important, if after that show of kindness is met with wickedness, if wickedness is returned for kindness, then that kindness can no longer be an option. In this situation, Hanun's refusal of David's kindness meant war. And David knew that all too well. Notice his counsel concerning those that reject a sincere act of kindness in Psalm 109. Of course, this is also speaking messianically as the Lord Christ, but this is what David is saying. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Therefore, set thou a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath and let the stranger spoil his labor." Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of their fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now that seems like it's a little bit over the top, but that is truly what David was preaching. This is my kindness to Hanun, and he rejected it. And when the wicked reject the kindness of Christ, they are condemned. And herein is the gospel lesson. Those that boldly reject the offer of the gospel of Christ's peace, as he extends his kindness, as David extended his kindness to the king of Ammon, they are to be regarded as wicked rebels to the legitimate authority of Christ and are to be dealt with in the same way as David deals with them in Psalm 109. We are to pray against them, precisely for their destruction, and especially if they hold an office of authority as Hanan, the king's son, did. This goes for pastors as well. Those pastors who refuse to bow to the Lordship of Christ and the authority of His Word, they too are condemned by the Scriptures. Secondly, David remembered to repay the kindness of the king after his rise to power. Again, shows his humility. He didn't say, I'm the king. Well, I don't have to worry about anybody else. I'm I'm the main guy. I am the guy. I'm God's man. No, I'm going to show kindness. I'm going to humble myself before this young man who has just taken the throne of his father. And we ought to remember that. We ought to remember those who aided us in our pilgrimage, right or wrong, And I know in my own pilgrimage, I am thankful for not only the people that helped me, but for the people that tried to destroy me. And we give thanks for all the providences of God. We remember to first show kindness. Try to repay kindness, even if it finally turns out that they show us unkindness and become our enemies. Thirdly, it is sometimes wise to make peace with an enemy if it places you in a more influential position for future endeavors. Let me say that again for you who are involved in politics. Sometimes 
It's wise to make peace with someone who you disagree with on a certain point or one of your enemies if it puts you in more influential position for a future endeavor. That is cunning. This is what David did when he made himself mad before the enemies of God. Number four, confederacies are are a tricky thing. Alliances and allegiances are a tricky thing. Since David was actually seeking to forge a confederacy, he had to wait until he was in a position to do so. Because confederacies must be made only when you are in a more powerful and stable and secure position to make them. If you try to make peace with a more powerful enemy, if you try to confederate with a more powerful enemy, they were regarded as weakness, in which it is, because you're trying to say, I'm weak, so let's, let's, let's now confederate with the strong one because I need their help. And as a result, you put yourself in a situation of subservience whereby they will eventually dominate you. So in order to make confederacies, you've got to be really, really careful. David's position politically, economically, militarily, and theologically was far superior than that of the Ammonites. He lost nothing by making a confederacy. In fact, he was giving them the upper hand. He was saying, you come to us and we want to show you kindness. Let's confederate together. And Jesus is our example here. He never intended to make peace or even show kindness to the Pharisees. He was not very kind to the money changers. He wasn't kind to Caesar, Herod, a high priest. This is where David miscalculated. David was trying to make peace with a man who refused the offer of peace. And for whatever reason, the son of the Ammonite king still held on to a deep suspicion against David to the point where he mistrusted him. Now, maybe he didn't initially entrust him. Maybe he didn't initially mistrust him. Maybe it was at the persuasion of his counsel. So there's another lesson. Be careful of who are those who counsel you, your your advisors. Be careful of who they are that advise you. You want to make sure that they have not an axe to grind against someone that you may not have an axe to grind against. And so David, of course, sadly, Hanun is persuaded easily by these counselors against the offer of peace from David. And so David sends messengers, tidings of peace to Hanun, fearing that this was a trap Hanun's counselors persuade him that David only has evil intentions. The problem with this is that those who think evil of someone who is really showing kindness are evil themselves. They're too suspicious. And we read in chapter 10, verse 3, beginning in verse 3 of 2 Samuel, And the princes of the children of Ammon said unto Hanun their lord, Thinkest thou that David doth honor thy father? See, they're thinking evil of him that he had sent comforters unto thee? Hath not David rather sent his servants unto thee to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? Now sadly, because, and, and we don't know the particulars, the age of Hanon, or we don't know really if he was so cunning or he definitely had advisors, he probably needed advisors. He was pliable. Unfortunately, he was pliable. So instead of looking into whether or not David's intentions were honorable by sending out his own spies, by sending an emissary to David to find out whether or not this was really the case, he's easily persuaded by his princes and he acts rashly. And again, this should act as a warning to every influential ruler as to who they placed in position of their advisory board. But because Hanan might have been skeptical in the first place, maybe it was easy for him to be persuaded 
against David's true intentions of kindness. Adam Claude comments, he says, It has been a matter of just complaint through all the history of mankind that there is little sincerity in courts or counselors or advisors. Courtiers especially are suspicious of each other and often mislead their sovereigns. They feel themselves to be insecure and suspect others to be so also. Now note how the king's son humiliates David's messengers. Wherefore, Hanun took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even unto their buttocks, and sent them away. Now to cut off a beard of a grown man, especially an emissary of the king, especially one who is an ordained messenger of the king of Israel, is a great disrespect, even to the point of actually declaring war. And since the beard was held in high respect in Israel and in the Middle Eastern countries, the possessor of it was regarded as a nobleman and he was then given the greatest respect. His beard was actually his greatest ornament. It signified maturity. It signified respectability. It signified a position of honor, of eldership. And to have it shaved, even to have it shaved half off was a shameful and humiliating thing. To have it shaved halfway was even greater of a humiliation as it would almost disfigure the man's whole face making it unbalanced. Furthermore, according to custom, a man would swear an oath by his beard. That's how important a beard was. He would, he would swear an oath by his beard. That was he was, he was honoring his oath in light of his office or his respectability. His beard was used as a security for his pledge, almost intimating that if he failed to make good on his oath, then his beard would be shaven and he would be ashamed. A beard would be shaven only in mourning or as a sign of enslavement. So actually what Hanun was doing was he was sending a message to David that he would not be a slave to Israel, but rather Israel would be a slave to Ammon. I'm going to shave the beards and show you that I will not be your slave, but you're going to be my slave. A further humiliation was placed upon David's messengers by cutting their garments in half right down to their butts. It is possible that these garments, and you know, we think about that and they were just just ordinary garments. No, no, no. These were, these were garments of respectability. These were not just simply ordinary garments. Since these men were there as messengers of the king, representing the king, they very likely were ornamented with certain embroidery, identifying them as messengers of King David and as emissaries in honor of the city of the great king, Jerusalem. They may have been ornamented with certain embroidery, identifying them as messengers of the king, and so to cut them in half was another sign of disrespect to David, who only sought to have a peaceful relationship with his distant kinfolk and maybe even having a confederacy. This shamed the men to the point where they wouldn't even return to the king in such a state because they were so ashamed. And so David, and I find this amazing, David, so compassionate, he travels, he, he himself travels to meet them. He doesn't send a messenger he himself, he goes to meet them and he tells them to wait at Jericho 
until their beards were grown, and then they can return. So when they told it to David, he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then return. Ammon's shameful act obviously backfired. While they were once in David's kind regard, they are now despised and considered enemies of the king and enemies of God's kingdom. But instead of repenting and sending a gift of reconciliation to David, confessing that he had made a gross error in judgment, Hanun doubles down and declares war against Israel. And this was, this was sheer madness. Israel had just conquered pretty much all of the pagan tribes. At this point, they had left the Ammonites alone. So for, for this king's son to decide he's going to double down and declare war, this was crazy. This was sheer madness. But this is what the reprobate do when they confront the king of kings. When they are confronted with the kindness of the gospel, Instead of saying, okay, we thank you for the kindness, they repudiate it, they declare war against it, and then they double down and say, well, we'll conspire against the Lord and against His Christ. Note the cowardice of the Ammonites. They don't just say, well, we'll stand toe-to-toe with the Israelites. No, that's not what they're doing. And when the children of Ammon saw that they stank before David, that they were in big trouble, they just poked the bear... The children of Ammon sent and hired Syrians. They hired the Syrians of Bethrob and the Syrians of Zuba, 20,000 footmen, and the king of Mecca, 1,000 men, and of Ashtab, 12,000 men. We're going to get all these confederates. We're going to confederate with all these people, and we're going to stand against David because we're in big trouble now because we know David's going to come and, and declare war against us. And what is interesting about this action is the nation of the Ammonites decided not to fight their own battle. Isn't that a coward? Let's just hire everybody else. Let's hire all of these mercenaries to help us because we can't fight our own battles. And this is probably because they knew themselves to be too weak, which is also why the princes of Ammon thought that it was David's original desire to take them over because they thought that they were fair game. They knew that they were fair game for the mighty Israelites. So as an attempt to save face, and to save their nation, Ammon conspires with a more powerful army and hires them to secure their nation from any blowback from David. But what is even more bizarre about this decision is that Hanun really didn't know what David was going to do. He didn't know. He didn't know David was going to attack. Maybe he thought maybe. But he decides. As soon as he knew that that he had made a mistake, he decides without any real concrete information. We don't read anywhere that he sent spies out to see whether or not they were assembling the army. He just said, I know I'm in trouble now and David's going to just whack me. He knew without any information, or at least he thought he knew, that he would now be in war. And he decides to act aggressively. And that lesson we need to take seriously. Before we act emotionally in order to navigate a difficult situation, we need to be careful to know all the facts. Hanun had no idea how David would act. Might have had an idea, but really he didn't know for sure. Okay, so he really didn't have an idea. He rather assumed how the king would act, based on no actual intelligence. 
And this is a case of wrong assumptions and how they can be very, very dangerous. The fact that Hanun had to hire four separate tribes shows just how powerful Israel was at that time. Four tribal nations were needed to go up against Israel. Now, if we apply this to the wicked when they refuse the gospel of peace, we can also see how bizarre this is, since rebellious man has no idea of what God is going to do in response to their evil. You think about it. If people thought today that God is going, if the wicked people today thought how God was going to respond to their wickedness, what would they do? Would they, would they, would they, would they bow? Would they, no, no. They would, they would beg for mercy. Ammon needed to beg for mercy. He didn't need it to double down. Today, the wicked just double down against God. And once David hears of the king's plan, he meets it head on. He is so angered about the disgrace that the king's son placed upon his people, his city, and his God, he declares war. I ask you this. When the wicked disgrace the church of Jesus Christ and declare war upon God, do you think God is not going to respond like David? So he meets Hanun head on. And he sends Joab to face off against the mercenaries. Now here's a situation. Consider the situation here. Joab, Abishai, his brother, and the army of Israel face off against the Syrians. Now each of these men have at their disposal a fighting troop of Israelites to fight off their enemies. Now what we have here is an effort by Joab and Abishai with their armies to work together in tandem, in concert, as a unit so that they are not overrun or outmanned or outflanked by the opposing armies. If they weren't going, as we're going to see, if they weren't going to act together to support one another, two men, a great picture of the church as Christ sends them out two by two, two men working together against the enemies of God, if they didn't work like that together, they would have been outrun. But they're working together as a unit. And this is an initial lesson for the children of God as they are threatened by pagan forces. Unity is essential. We must be together as one mind, as one body, one Lord, one Christ, working together in an alliance, just like these two brothers. Now, when Ezra, Ezra the priest, gathered together Israel... The scripture says that they gathered together as one man. It's the only way victory is accomplished. When we work together. Whether it's a local church, a community, a series of churches. The only way we are victorious is when we work together. Notice what we read in both Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra 3.1 And when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah 8, verse 1, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Together, unified. The apostle picks up on this. When writing to the dysfunctional Corinthians, 
First, the body is one, and it's many members, and all the members of that body are one, being many are one body, so also is Christ. You see, a nation divided cannot be victorious, neither can it be secure. And Jesus made that very clear in Matthew twelve twenty-five. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. That's an absolute. Our nation today is divided. It shall not stand. And the only hope of the nation, or any nation for that matter, is the unification of the church of Jesus Christ, the elect of God. Individualism. And that's what we have today, most of the time in the churches, me and my Bible. That is a formula for destruction. That is a formula for defeat. And Joab knew that. Especially as he took an assessment of the strength of the opposing armies. And this is again an absolute principle. Whenever a nation or a people is divided along theological, political, economical, philosophical lines, desolation must result. It must be the end. Schism at any level ensures destruction. If the house of David was to survive, Joab and Abishai had to work as one. And so Joab and Abishai agree that if one group gets into trouble, then the other group will come to his aid. I'm not going to let you hang out there alone, my brother. Nor am I going to let you hang out there alone, my brother. And he said, If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for thee, then I will come and help thee. There's an oath. I will help you, my brother. I will be there. I will be there. That's what we need. But then Job says something very interesting. In verse 12, he says to his brother, Be of good courage. Now why would he say that? Because they were squaring off with a number of tribes, number of nations that were fighting for their lives. Naturally there would be some fear. Be of good courage. And let us play the men for our people. Notice the lack of individualistic idea. Don't play the man for yourself. Don't be courageous for yourself. Don't be strong and valiant for yourself. Play the men for thy people and for the cities of our God and the Lord do that which seemeth good. So first he encourages Abishai to be courageous, but then he says there's more than just courage. Play the men which actually means play courageously for the men of your army. It's not about you to be courageous. It's it's for them. Encourage them. Become hardened. In fact, that is what the Hebrew word means. Become hardened. When you get into that battle, you become hard as flint. Which tells us that the whole gospel of Jesus loves you and really, really wants you to come to Him. It's absolutely unbiblical. We are to go out against the enemies of God, provided we know who they are, and often we know who they are, hoping they repent. But if they don't, and they harden their faces against us, we are to go out and play the men. Be hardened. Secondly, he wants his brother Abishai to be courageous for the people of Israel. Not only for the troop, but for everyone, every child of God, for the whole city. 
In other words, it's not so that he would be courageous for himself, but he would be a courageous example and an encouragement for God's people who are in the battle with him and who are back in the city of Jerusalem, who are not part of the warrior team. This aspect of courage is an essential aspect of the kingdom work. Christian, I kid you not, we are in a battle. Make no mistake about it. This ideological combat, which historically has often resulted in an armed conflict, if not resolved, is a real issue. And while there may have been times when the battle seemed to be slight, there are other times when the battle rages hot. And I could tell you this, the battle is raging hotter and hotter because we live in such a time now that when when we turn around and we look around, the battle is getting hotter and hotter against the Lord and against His people. Today, there's talk about not allowing the First Amendment, which gives us the right to preach the gospel in the public square. There's talk about having it taken from us. So no longer will you be allowed to speak God's word in the public square if they get their way. But here's the real problem. You might say, well, that's a real problem. That's not the problem. The problem is next they come for the worship. Next they come for the worship. Next they say, well, now you can't speak out there and you can't even worship God in here. That's what they did in China. And we are infected with that Chinese, Asian, Oriental ideology. The ideology of tyranny. In addition to the battle against the wicked, each of the saints, as you know it all too well, have to still contend with the internal battle against sin. So we got battle on two fronts. The great Puritan pastor George Swinock explains it this way. He says this, Our spiritual war admits no intermission. You can't take a break. No intermission. It knows no night. No winter. Abides no peace, no truce. This calls us not into garrisons where we may ease and respite, but into pitched fields continually. We see our enemies in the face always and are always seen as assaulted. We are assaulted, ever resisting, however, ever defending, receiving and returning blows. Notice, receiving and returning blows. That's what combat is all about. If either we be negligent or weary, we die. We can never have our safety and peace but in victory. Peace through strength. Peace only after victory. But the Christians have been given little by little, little here, little there, back to the wicked, back to the wicked, more power to the wicked. They've been giving away their strength to the state. He ends by saying this, There must our resistance be courageous and constant, where both yielding is death, and all treaties of peace mortal. Death. So as a result of the fierceness of the battle we face, we must be unified and courageous in addition in being much in prayer. We have to communicate before the Lord, give communion to the Lord in our prayer and our, and, our, and, our, and our pleading with God that He would strengthen us, that we could play the man so that we wouldn't be defeated. Jesus always was about praying. I'm afraid that the one thing that we lack in Christianity today is a vibrant 
consistent, powerful prayer life, praying at every moment, talking with God, and laying it all out, even even some of the mundane things, just lay it out, God help me. Third point, Joab was also concerned for the cities of God, because he knew that Jerusalem was the testimony of what God had built. Are we not concerned for what God has built? Will we not defend what God has built, the church of Jesus Christ? Not only did Joab want the battle to be victorious for the people of God, but for the united governing entities of Israel, that they would continue to be unified. We ought to be fighting for more than just God's people. We ought to be fighting for the entire kingdom of God and its governing structure, the testimony of Christ and His church. Fourthly, Joab then tells Abishai, that he ought to be courageous for Yahweh and do what God deems good. Now, of course, one might think, well, that's exactly what Joab, that's exactly what Job should have wanted. But remember, Joab was under God's curse for killing Abner. And yet, in the heat of this battle, even Joab, to his credit, still desires to bless God and fight for his kingdom. So, once Joab and Abishai get things under control and the enemies are being routed, the Syrians come to Helam, led by Sobath. And seeing this, now David the king himself. Joab and Abishai, and now David. The big guns. He enters the battle with the remainder of Israel and faces off against the Syrians. We see this in verse 17. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and passed over Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in array against David and fought with him. Now, the Syrians, of course are no match for David, and he easily defeats them with a great slaughter. We read this in verse 18. And, and this defeat signals a no contest between the Syrians and David's forces. And of course, they're forced to surrender in verse 19. And when all the kings that were servants to Hadad-Rezer saw that they were smitten before Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians feared to help the children of Ammon anymore. We're not going to help you anymore. You brought us into this mess and we were decimated. Okay, in closing, there are several things to be considered. Number one, there is such a thing as the procurance of peace through strength. The church has been so effeminate that it no longer is strong. It doesn't show itself strong. It doesn't position itself as strong. The state says close, it closes. The state says jump, the church says how high. The state says become a 501c3 entity of the state and the church writes a check. We need to show strength. David was only able to bring about peace as a direct result of the strength of his nation and his faith in God. Secondly, strength comes only from God but only to those that trust in God and have the honor and advancement of His kingdom as their main objective. That's what these men wanted. Joab, Abishai, David, all they were concerned about was the glory of God, the testimony of Jerusalem, what God had built. Thirdly, it is advantageous to defeat all opposition totally so that they are ultimately leaving you alone. You want them to leave you alone so that you may get on with the kingdom work. Because once Israel defeated the Syrians, they wanted nothing to do any longer with the Ammonites or the Israelites and they left them alone. They was able to continue to do his work. 
David was able to continue in the building of the city of God, advancing the cause because he was strong. And this is what the secularists refuse to allow the church to do. The secularists want to keep the church down. They despise kingdom building. So now you can't speak about Christ in the marketplace. You can't worship. You can't congregate together. You can't encourage one another. You can't be taught how to play the man. Because they despise the kingdom of God. They despise kingdom building for the glory of God according to the law of God. And this is why they will stop at nothing to hamstring the productivity of the church and her faithful pastors by issuing laws and policies that are purely evil and have their only motivation the destruction of the testimony of the truth. But you can't kill the truth as long as the children of God remain lovers of the truth. David was victorious because his only desire was to seek peace and advance the dominion power of the city of God. Now, if he ever departed from that objective, if he ever departed from that objective, or if he ever left it to another person by thinking he'd be an absentee ruler, as we're going to see in the future, an absentee warrior, as we're going to see in the future, when it was his duty to be in the battle with his people, he waited at the city. When it was the time for kings to go to battle, he abdicated his responsibility as a warrior ruler. And once that happens, the testimony of the city of God is destroyed. We cannot leave the testimony of the church, of the true church, to the wicked. We will consider that sad event when David abdicates his position as warrior king. Next, and we return to our exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.